Is biblical Christianity good for society? Or should we just do away with it? Uh, In our Western world today, that's kind of an open question for many that our culture is asking. A fiercely debated question, especially in the face of rising secularism. Uh, On the one hand, in our culture, there are many who have turned away from faith and religion, viewing it as uh, perhaps as unnecessary for uh, human flourishing uh, or even negative for society. One journal article last year noted how that in the 2021 Australian census, uh, it revealed there a decline of religious, religion in general uh, and also Christianity specifically in Australia. And I quote from that article, in 1971, 87% of Australians identified as religious and overwhelmingly uh, those would be Christians. Now it's 54%. What is more, only five years ago, 52% of Australians identified as Christian. Now that number is sitting at 44%, which represents an almost 20% decline in Christian belief in just five years. So that's sort of one reality where on the one hand, by and large, our culture is turning towards uh, secularism. And yet on the other hand, despite this overall decline away from Uh, religion and the Christian faith, evangelical churches, being those who hold to core Christian truths of the Bible, have not faced the same decline. Uh, Speaking from an American point of view about the West, Timothy Callas has has this to say about this reality. Uh, For 30 years, we've been told that the Western society is becoming post-Christian and that the church must adapt to a changing culture in order to remain relevant. Despite this gloomy prediction, Christianity has displayed remarkable staying power. There are parts of North America where substantial numbers of people still hold traditional religious and moral beliefs. While mainline churches have declined, evangelical churches largely have not. It might be more accurate to say that instead of being thoroughly post-Christian, America today is marked by spotty Christendom in many places. And what he says of America, my understanding is true of the Western world in general. Now, as a church, we would firmly place ourselves in this second camp, truly believing that Christianity does offer something that is truly good for society. And so with these two realities in mind, with that as a whole our culture seems to be turning away from its faith-based roots, while there are churches like ours which are, really see the value of Christianity, uh, I want to now then turn to our passage and how, considering how God's Word has something to say a bit about this present reality that we find ourselves in. And what, is, what do we find here? What do we find here from Matthew 2? Well, for starters, our passage is a warning. A warning for the church and a message of warning that the church carries into our culture. Warning us what we're really getting ourselves into if we, as our culture, as like our culture, keep going down this trajectory. And if we, as a church, choose to follow along with it. 
A warning that could be perhaps pictured like going down the highway at 110 kilometers an hour and suddenly seeing the bright roadwork and stop signs flashing ahead, all signaling to us that there's danger on the road here. Will you slow down and stop in time? But it's more than that. Our passage teaches us how and why Christ and his gospel uh, really provides a beacon of light in the midst of a culture that is turning away from God. And in this way, as Christians, we can be better equipped to uh, carry this divine antidote to our neighbors, an antidote that we need ourselves. And so as we go through this passage together this morning, uh, I've just got a really simple outline, three things that I want to work through with you this morning, and uh, being the problem that we face, uh, the consequences, and then the remedy. And so I just want to begin then with the problem as according to our passage here this morning. What our passage, I believe, helps us do is gain a better grasp on what the problem is that we face. The problem that you could describe as being all things Egypt, which is one way of describing the natural tendency all people, all societies, and all individuals have to turn away from God. These opening chapters of Matthew have been describing the origins and early life of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And as I said before, last week we explored a well-known passage about the Magi coming from the east to visit Jesus and give him these gifts, gifts fit for a king. We also learned something else, how there was another king at the time, King Herod. A king who was not all that fond of the idea of there being another king in town. He was known to kill and dispatch of anyone, including members of his own family, if he thought that they were a challenge to his person and throne. And so with this present danger at hand of Herod, the narrative continues in verses 13 to 15 that we've read the start of our passage this morning tracing the escape of Jesus and his family to Egypt. Having been warned in a dream by an angel sent by God, Joseph, Jesus' father, quickly escapes with his family. The fact that they traveled by night suggests both the urgency and secrecy of their escape, hoping to get away quickly without drawing unnecessary attention to themselves. All this, Matthew says, was to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes Isaiah 11 verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. To properly understand how Jesus fulfills this Old Testament scripture, we need to consider two things this morning, geography and theology. Now to do this, I think Matthew wants us to do a bit of R&R here this morning. Not rest and re- relaxation that you're probably thinking about. Please don't fall asleep while you're listening to me. But another R&R, read and reflect. On the one hand, we need to read about this narrative that's right in front of us. The immediate physical geographic aspects of where Jesus was and uh, where he was going in space and time. 
and then to reflect upon them about what they teach us about God and his plan of salvation through his son Jesus. And what we find is that geographically, Jesus is reenacting the physical steps of ancient Israel as a nation, bringing them to their fulfillment. A bit like tracing someone's footsteps in the sand at the seashore. To understand why Jesus has quoted Isaiah 11 verse 1 requires a bit of understanding of our Old Testament. If we think back in the Old Testament to the birth of Israel as a nation, it all began with Abraham, who received God's covenant promises. Later on in the book of Genesis, it describes there how the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, had 12 sons. And him and all his sons in the providence of God eventually came to live in Egypt. And as the years rolled on in Egypt, these Israelites grew and grew and became a mighty people amongst the Egyptian people. And because of that, they, under Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they began to receive harsh treatment. They were oppressed with slave labor and violent acts against them. Having heard their desperate cries for help, God listened to his people Israel. And as we read in the book of Exodus, it records how God saves Israel from out of Egyptian slavery. He does so with a mighty outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment as he brings his people into the promised land of Israel and Judah. Likewise, here in Matthew 2, Matthew is purposely showing how geographically Jesus is physically retracing Israel's steps by going to Egypt. But having considered the geography here, it's time now to do a bit of R&R, to reflect on the theological truths of what Matthew is teaching. And we do so by asking and considering this question. Who is the real Egypt here? In our present narrative, Jesus had to flee to Egypt to find safety, not from Egypt. Apparently, there was something like a million Jews living in Egypt at the time. Egypt was a relatively safe place to go for a Jew. Matthew then is teaching us something critical here. Israel themselves have become Egypt. Israel themselves are becoming, and we're becoming, that godless nation, the place of oppression and evil. Having been saved from Pharaoh out of Egypt all those years prior, now things have come full circle. Now Israel, they are the ones who, by and large, have turned their backs on God and are beginning to be the place of oppression. Herod is the new Pharaoh. And so is the risk of any nation, tribe of people. The huge capacity then that the West have has to drift off the cliff into the black hole of godlessness should not come as a, as a surprise to the church. For our passage teaches us that as people, it is our very nature to, that we all have a bit of Egypt in us. The human tendency to drift away from the things of God. Why? Because of 
the nature of indwelling sin. We are by nature Egyptian in the biblical spiritual sense, not ethnically. And the issue is not just out there in our culture, but amongst us in the church. The church too can drift, as seen in in the decline of many churches in the West. I wonder if you've recognized this natural tendency in your own walk with the Lord. Our passage calls us to examine our own hearts. And so if that is the problem then, this problem of all things Egypt, a problem that every person and society has to face, what does it lead to? What, according to our passage, why, according to our passage, should we take it seriously? Well, having considered the problem, we now think about the consequences, about embracing godlessness and all things Egypt. And what we learn is that sin by its nature is oppressive and it leads, leads to oppressive societies. Our passage teaches us this through verses 16 to 18 and the tragic events that we find there. As we read earlier, in, a, in an attempt to maintain his position... Herod orders the killing of all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem, hoping to wipe out the child Jesus in the process. I mean, these verses are kind of shocking to read. Such cold-blooded killing of children. Such devastating and life-altering loss for those poor parents. It gives us a picture here of the effects of sin in a godless society and how it is tragic and oppressive. The events in these passages might spark many questions in, our, in your minds. I mean, why did God allow such a thing to happen? Why didn't he send his angels to tell all the parents in that village what was coming? Why did he only save Jesus? The problem of suffering and ongoing evil in our world is a question that many have as a barrier to the Christian faith. And a question many Christians, as they face suffering themselves, have of God. Maybe the words of Psalm 42 verse 9 is the cry of our heart, even this day. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? whatever that enemy may be for us. Maybe that's you today. The Bible consistently teaches us a really difficult truth, one that the human heart does not want to hear or accept. It's a truth that the responsibility for the darkness and evil that exists in this world lies with us that it was the human race in the beginning that sinned against God and therefore brought all the evil and its dark consequences into this world. We might very well point the finger at God, but his finger is firmly pointing back at us. The question for each of us is whether you and I are willing to accept this, and along with that, accepting his finger pointing at us, also turn our own finger and point at ourselves too, whereby truly acknowledging in our heart the responsibility each of us 
bear for the broken world that exists. To be clear, this does not mean that we always suffer directly because of our own personal sin. Maybe we suffer because of someone else's sin. Sometimes even suffering directly because we do good. As the Apostle Peter highlights in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Furthermore, our passage does not necessarily teach that all will experience the oppressive nature of sin in all the same way. Not all of us might experience the same thing that we've read in our passage. But we will and do experience it in various ways. Like our narrative, we too may physically strike and cause harm of someone else or be harmed against. I mean, I just think of the war in Ukraine at the moment as a case in point. I read somewhere that there's something they think like 100,000 Russian soldiers alone have died so far in the war. But we don't need to look afield to see this, for it's right here on our doorstep. Maybe we can just consider the violence that occurred within Australian families here. Uh, I read somewhere ABS data that it's estimated that 8 million Australians have experienced violence, whether physical or sexual, since the age of 15. 8 million. But sin is oppressive in other ways. Like how in sin so many pursue different identities for personal fulfillment. Whether it's finding identity in our job or attaching your identity to some personal skill or ability that you have or attaching your identity to your sexual orientation or even your gender. Rather than finding your chief fulfillment in God, by pursuing these things for fulfillment ultimately leads to a goose chase that can never in themselves provide the full soul satisfaction that our heart needs. And so sin is oppressive in this way in how it causes our hearts to burn for things that ultimately cannot satisfy and opens up the door for us to oppress others if they don't accept our man-made identities and idols. Ultimately, sin oppresses by keeping us out of God's life-giving and loving presence sucking our soul dry of true life and joy that can only be found in God, instead enslaving us and imprisoning us on the inside, killing the soul and one day killing the body as well. I wonder if you've recognized the oppressive nature of sin in your own life and in the world around us. If the way of all things Egypt then really does come with some heavy consequences, how then does Christianity truly address this dire plight for the human soul and society? That's why lastly I want to consider the remedy to all things Egypt from our passage. And how our passage shows us that the answer lies not in ourselves, in our own goodness, but in Jesus Christ, the true and faithful Israel. Our passage shows that Jesus identifies with his people, Israel. 
but actually shows also how himself to be the true Israel. The one person who succeeded where God's people failed. Unlike ancient Israel who constantly turned it away from God, Jesus throughout his life remained faithful. Being the only person born without sin, committing no sin. The incarnate Son of God who took on human flesh. And it was he who delivers us from our tendency to drift away from God. Something that he achieved paradoxically by not being accepted but rejected. As hinted at in verses 19 to 23. In these verses, upon returning to Israel after the death of Herod, once again Matthew recalls the Exodus account. Similar to Moses, who returned to Egypt after a time of exile in the land of Midian, Jesus now returns to Israel. But instead of returning to Bethlehem, Joseph takes his family to Nazareth, having been warned in yet another dream. In verse 23, once again, Matthew says Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy by doing so. But unlike other prophecies that he's quoted so far, other Old Testament scriptures, at first glance, it's not all that apparent how or what Old Testament scripture Matthew is referring to here. Is Matthew just kind of making something up here? What Matthew appears to be doing here is twofold. For one, it seems that he does a play on words with, uh, with the word for Nazarene. Uh, Nazarene is similar to the Hebrew word for branch in Isaiah 11 verse 1. Another verse being clearly messianic in its meaning. In, in Isaiah 11 and the surrounding chapters, despite Israel who had failed God and been cast off into exile, a little branch would shoot from that stump of a nation that remained. And this branch is Jesus who has come as the true Israel. Secondly, as this this small branch, he would be rejected. Nazareth was culturally and religiously at the time a place of nowhere, as echoed by Jesus' soon-to-be disciple Nathaniel in John 1.46, where he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? As this branch, Jesus was rejected by many in Israel something that was prophesied back in Isaiah 53 verse 3, where it says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. For Matthew's readers then, Nazareth was a picture of the rejection and humiliation Jesus would face in his life. Throughout his adult ministry, this is exactly what Jesus experienced. Although some believe that he was truly the Messiah, many Jews that he met uh, remained spiritually blind, failing to accept him as their Messiah. And all this rejection came to a climax on on the cross, where Jesus, instead of being crowned king with a golden crown, adorned a crown of thorns, was beaten and physically tormented through death, on the cross. 
But what man purposed for evil, God purposed for good. Having borne the wrath of God on the cross for sinners, he took the place of sinners, becoming our substitute. On the cross, Jesus took that responsibility for, for sin and the consequences that it leads to upon himself. And he defeated the power and oppression of sin. Now for believers, we can begin to experience this freedom from sin in this life. No longer being enslaved to it like an oppressive master over us. And to truly find lasting joy and happiness in the risen Christ who rose again to give us new life. As his church, the message of the cross of Christ is one that we carry into the world in our words and deeds. As Christians, knowing the love of the rejected Savior helps us face rejection that we might face ourselves. Knowing that no matter what, we are accepted by God in Christ. And that this is a message that we can embody as the church. As we consider what it means to present this message to our culture, it means two things. On the one hand, it's a message that is radically offensive and a challenge for our culture. For it calls all people uh, that we are all sinners, not good enough in ourselves for God. It will call out sinful passions for what they are, and that they will not provide the lasting hope and fulfillment or soul satisfaction that they promise to give. And it's a message that going on in the way of sin is ultimately the way of death and oppression. But on the other hand, the gospel is radically attractive, showing that true freedom from the enslavement of sin is offered in Jesus that a satisfaction for the soul is on offer that cannot be found in the world. And that the power of the gospel at work of believers brings a reversal of the oppression that sin brings. I wonder if you know that power of the gospel in your own life. As the world looks on, they'll be strangely uh, offended and attracted to the message that we bring as they see the gospel take root in the lives of God's people, and as we ourselves walk into the footprints that Jesus himself left on the sand. To what end do you, church goer, this morning know the love of the rejected Savior and the forgiveness of sins that he offers? Do you know him to be your servant king this morning? Does your heart sing with these words that Christ has indeed served me. Knowing Christ, your personal servant king, requires repentance. It means acknowledging and accepting that offensive truth that you are indeed a sinner. Acknowledging the power of sin over your life and that you don't have the spiritual resources in yourself to conquer it. It also means having faith. Faith not in yourself and your own ability to live how God requires you. 
but seeking salvation from outside of yourself in Jesus and that he paid for your sins fully on the cross and that there he conquered the power of sin and he sends his Holy Spirit to live in believers to conquer sin in us. And so do you believe and know that Christ and his gospel is indeed good for you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we've considered uh, these latter verses of your word here in chapter 2 of Matthew, Father, it is a terrible account really to read how at times humanity is so capable of causing so much pain and hardship to others. Father, our world explains that reality about human nature in so many different ways. But never getting to the root cause, the sin that lies behind it, that it is our nature, Father, to cause harm and to turn away from you. Father, as we consider the cross this morning and the rejection that you faced for us, Lord, Father, it is bewildering to think that it was the Son of God that came there, that you came and suffered for us. You're the one that did not deserve any of it. And yet by your will, you chose to suffer. You chose to go to the cross to open up the way of salvation for us, for your people. Father, as we look on and consider the rejection that you face for us, may our hearts be filled with your love, knowing that we have received your mercy and grace that covers the multitude of our sins. Father, I pray for every believer here this morning that is struggling in their walk with you, and in particular, in fighting sin in their life and in persistent sin that doesn't seem to give up. Father, I pray, Lord, that in their troubles and in their struggles that they would come to you and that, Holy Spirit, you would break that power of sin in their life. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we as a church press on in our faith, that we would be a people that uh, demonstrate lives that have been freed from this sin. That, Father, that as we live our lives, that others around us would see that and be attracted to what we have. Not in our own goodness, but what you are working in us. A message that is also offensive, Lord. Give us strength, Lord, to present the gospel in its full clarity both its offensiveness, but also in its uh, amazing attractiveness of the hope that we, it is on offer in you. And Father, indeed, we do pray for our culture, Lord. As we see so many turn away from you, Father, the need for revival is great. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would stir amongst this nation that hearts and lives would be changed by the power of the gospel and your love. Father, we think of the ongoing suffering in, in amongst our neighbours, Lord, 
But also in the wider world, we think of Ukraine. We think of terrible uh, ways that people are oppressed. In China, in North Korea, in many places. Your people that are oppressed because of their faith. Father, we pray for them and ask, Lord, that you would bring justice where there is injustice. And Father, I pray that when we are oppressed ourselves for our beliefs, Lord, big or small, Lord, help us have courage and strength, Lord, knowing that you first were rejected. And that, Father, no matter what rejection or hardship we face in this life, you promise an eternal life with you, that in the life to come you will deal with all that evil in its totality when you return, Lord. And Father, we look forward and hold on to that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.